Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at SupChina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious effort to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from beautiful Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from storied gold corn holler in the rustic southwestern suburbs of Nashville, Tennessee, is the one and only Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of SubChina, and the man I always blame when ardent nationalists or party apologists come after me for SubChina's mainstream anti-China coverage. Yep, I am always happy to throw old Jeremy under the tanky, if you will. <laughs> Jeremy, sorry, old buddy. Uh, sincerely, though, um, I'm, I'm sorry I do that all the time, but uh, greet, greet the people, won't you? Yeah, hi. No, that's fine. I'm, I'm tanky-proof. You can throw me under the tanky anytime. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to happen with increasing frequency. As, 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 anyway, Jeremy, China, to state the obvious, is a country that has undergone a little bit of you know change in a kind a of a short bit. period of time. Yeah, just a little bit. Uh, it's a country with you know social structures that have been uh, disrupted, upended, making a transition from from very traditional modalities rooted in in rural village life to the urban-centered, atomized society that, you know, arguably typifies China today. Generation gaps in China, you know, which has experienced so much change in just a couple of generations, are really yawning chasms. Add to this the huge demographic changes brought on by the controversial family planning or, you know, one-child policy. Uh, throw in the hyper-competitiveness of school, work, dating, and, and for good measure, just recall the relative recency of society-wide trauma, like the Cultural Revolution, is still keenly felt in China. And I think any reasonable person would expect mental illness to be on the rise in China. But in China, mental health is not discussed very much at all. Uh, quite a contrast to America, where people will tell you about their therapists two minutes after meeting you on the plane. Uh, and the language of psychology, psychiatry, and mental health is part of normal English here, bipolar, ADHD, PTSD, depression, anxiety, and stress. These are normal words in American popular culture. Uh, but that certainly isn't the case, or it wasn't the case in China. Uh, and I know, Kaiser, you and I have often uh, debated whether this was because Chinese people were somehow more resilient. And I know I used to often tell Westerners who were complaining of uh, depression or other psychological issues that they needed to be more like Chinese people and get a second <laughs> job and go and sell lighters on the streets uh, at night and then they wouldn't think so much about themselves. <laughs> but we've also, you know, on a more serious note, we've also talked about how mental illness may be just stigmatized in China or, or hidden from view. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. That's that's the side of the debate that I usually take, and you're the, the one who's like, oh, no, Chinese are really super resilient. Anyway, I know, coming from a Chinese family, that it was definitely stigmatized, and you know, at least when I was younger, it was treated as some kind of personal failing rather than as an actual 
disorder rooted in physiology and in, in brain chemistry. Uh, but my sense just in the years before I left China was that this was already changing quite a bit. Jeremy, did you sense that by the time you left? Well, I think it, it was changing, certainly amongst the, the chattering classes. Um, but I, I'm, I think one of the things I'm interested to talk about tonight is how much that has changed. Yeah, yeah. Well, today we are very fortunate to have somebody who can tell us all about that. Uh, we're joined by Dr. George Hu, who is a clinical psychologist and president of the Shanghai International Mental Health Association. George leads the United Family Mental Health Network in China and practices at United Families Hospital in Pudong, uh, down there in Shanghai. George is a Californian by birth, and like me, he's one of those via Taiwan ABC types. He's been working in China since 2013, inspired to come to China after, I think it was a stint in C doing clinical training at a big Chinese hospital. Uh, anyway, I cannot think of anyone better placed to talk about the state of mental health in China than George Hu. So George, a warm welcome to Seneca. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And it's my privilege to be here, honestly. Thanks, Thanks George. Let's try to get a, an idea of the, the scale of mental illness in China. Uh, I imagine that must be pretty contested and that estimates range really widely. Or is there some kind of consensus uh, amongst mental health professionals in China uh, about the size? What are the estimates of the number of people in China with mental health disorders and the percentage of those that are undiagnosed? Oh, wow. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a huge question. That's a huge question, I think, for any country, yeah. um, but especially for a place like China, you know, with such a large population, with many different subpopulations, with very famous and well-known sampling difficulties. Mm -hmm. um, there was a recent study that put the lifetime prevalence of mental illness at around 16, 17 percent. Wow. Um, but many of these things, many of these studies depend on self-report, which has notorious difficulties given the stigma that we talked about that exists here. And so it's actually very, very difficult to put an exact finger on, on, on what their actual true prevalence of mental illness is. There's also some definitional difficulties, right? Mm. So um, we define mental illness, and this is probably something we could break down a little bit. But we define mental illness in largely a Western-defined context, right? There's specific criteria um, that are put forth that have been developed and normed in largely Western areas. Sure. And so we use that criteria when we do the sampling. But the question I think remains to be asked is, does, do those criteria fit here? Are we catching people who are honestly having uh, mental difficulties? Or are we only catching people that meet a specific set of criteria. So what types of disorders, uh, at least by the, by the definitions that are in use right now among Chinese practitioners, among psychologists and psychiatrists in China, uh, what types of disorders are prevalent? I mean, I would guess that they would be more or less the same ones that afflict countries or regions that have also undergone, you know, really rapid modernization. So like South Korea, maybe, or, or, or Taiwan, or maybe even the U.S. in its early days. Can you can you draw some comparisons? What would you compare? I can, yeah. So, so yeah. actually, uh, according to the same study that I just referenced with all of its sampling uh, difficulties, anxiety disorders are the ones that are most common here in China, followed by mood disorders and then mm -hmm. by substance use disorders. This does closely follow the patterns that we see in other similar societies, obviously with a different sense of scale. But like Korea, for example, uh, we do see a similar pattern. However, 
in the states we actually see a more mood disorders yeah overtaking anxiety disorders however the two are actually closely related you know mood disorders such as depression um anxiety disorders such as generalized anxiety disorder and its related cousins are 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 actually according to many clinicians kind of two sides of the same coin to um two different manifestations of the same psych ache so to speak Hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the two are t- the two closely follow each other in many in many ways, yeah. But the substance use disorders are also um, a big difficulty here, as they are in many other parts of the world. I can imagine. Yeah. Are they? Is that different from the United States? I mean, I thought here in the United States we were the the king of the substance abusers. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, not. You know, maybe the king, but not the only member of the royal family. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, substance use disorders are definitely quite prevalent here. Uh, they're the number three identified mental health issue here. Uh, substance use issues are considered mental health issues by and large because they involve addiction and things like that. However, over here, they're typically governed by law enforcement. They're typically treated by law enforcement hospitals and, and treatment centers and not typically by the healthcare system. How's that working out for them? You know... Not too bad. You know, obviously there are um, severe consequences for, uh, you know, selling drugs and, 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 and things like that. And so that has actually helped here um, to quell substance use disorders. However, um, nicotine and alcohol continue to be big problems. Exactly. Exactly. Can you talk a little bit about how mental health is actually diagnosed and classified? You did mention that perhaps there were cultural factors coded into our understanding of these disorders that perhaps don't really reflect the Chinese cultural reality. But does China use something like the American DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders? So America is, the U.S. is actually the only jurisdiction that uses the DSM. The DSM is a distinctly North American tool. The rest of the world uses the ICD, which is the International Classification of Disorders, to classify, um, to codify not only mental health disorders, but actually all disorders um, of the human body. And so that is what China uses. However, China uses a version of it called the Chinese Classification of Disorders, which is actually quite similar to the ICD. Yeah, so that's what is seen here. However, the DSM and the ICD, particularly in the later versions of the DSM, are actually converging. Um, okay. And many people, many people believe that the two will converge more and more in later, in later iterations. And how, how different is the, the Chinese version of the ICD from the sort of international version? And uh, is it correct that when homosexuality was still classified as a mental disorder in China, it was listed in one of those documents that the government uses? Um, it was. Uh, it was as it was in the U.S., you know, as right. it was in the U.S., homosexuality was an identified disorder by the DSM hmm. until the until the mid seventies. Wow! So this is not something unique to China. And and in this, at the same time, just a few years after the DSM removed homosexuality at, uh, from its list of disorders, uh, China followed suit just a few years later. So yes, it was, but that's not unique to China. So I think the narrative here. And it's something interesting that I think more researchers really should be paying attention to. And the narrative here is that China has, by and large, the Chinese healthcare system has adopted conceptions of mental health that have been promulgated by 
Western sources. And I think that that fits for many other aspects of healthcare, but mental health actually, as is a lot of other aspects of healthcare, but mental health in particular is multifactorial. There's social, cultural, socioeconomic, uh, historical, community factors that weigh into whether somebody is experiencing emotional or mental difficulty. Mm. The very way in which we describe it, the very way in which we conceive of or where we take the spectrum of human functioning and we start to draw lines according to what is disordered or what is not disordered. And those lines change according to where you are, according to what generation we're in, all sorts of things. And so, you know, researchers or developers of the ICD or the DSM have chosen to draw the lines in certain places according to what is seen in those populations. And China has by and large adopted them. But I think the question should be asked, what does it look like here? How do Chinese people experience difficulty? So I'm choosing difficulty, the word difficulty, apart from mental health, Mm -hmm. right? Because even Mm -hmm. the word mental health, even the word psychology is laden with Western philosophies, Hmm. right? Western concepts of the body versus the mind, Um, Western concepts of the psyche, what that is, where is it located? Um, What does it mean to, to, to experience psychological distress? And while we have commensurate Chinese terms for them, they are new in the Chinese way of describing distress in the Chinese way of describing pain or difficulty, it hasn't been so focused on the mind. It hasn't been so focused on what the Greeks called the psyche. You know, the Chinese call it the xinli, but uh, they don't locate that in the mind, right? right? That's called the center, right? It's an undefined center. So there are questions, I believe, to be asked here about whether even the diagnostic categories that we have Uh, in the West, are completely uh, relevant here. Now, that having been said, China's been globalizing just like the rest of the world, you know, for generations, right? So for a couple of generations. And so, you know, some of these questions may, by and large, become moot, I think, in a generation or two. You talked about convergence in the way that that mental health issues are, are diagnosed. It seems that they are importing, though, as you say, a lot of, of these these concepts from Western psychiatry and from Western psychology and its intention, I suppose, with, with indigenous ideas about you know, mental wellness or mental illness. But do psychiatrists in China, other mental health professionals in China, are they increasingly buying into the models for pathology as well? I mean, do they, for instance, see depression largely as, you know, so they call it yujun. Is it a matter of serotonin up reuptake? Is, is that... They see it in the same kind of brain chemical terms. You know, the psychiatrists do. And it's not because it's, it's not necessarily only because they're trained to, to see it only in that way. I think that there is something in the Chinese healthcare system that almost pushes that, right? That, that, that necessitates that as sort of the only type of treatment that we can offer currently in an accessible way. Um, this sort of serotonin or other neurotransmitter deficit narrative of right. depression, right? If we take that as, a, as an example. And also anxiety, right? The same, the same medications are used by and large to treat both. Huh. So 
there is that narrative that is pushed or at least utilized in the prescriptive world, right? And so, so the psychiatrist will prescribe SSRIs and other related medications really as the first line treatment. Benzodiazepines for anxiety. Benzos for, for anxiety, et cetera. Yeah, benzos are typically used in supplement to an SSRI, but one or both. But the access to psychological or what we call psychotherapy, counseling, psychological services, non-pharmacological psychological services are something that um, I think really needs to happen here. The access needs to be opened up. It is changing and it is becoming more accessible, but China's a big place and it really does need to um, increase more and more. Post-COVID, I think that's been changing. Post-COVID and the advent of all things online, you know, and all things video conference related, I think has really helped psychotherapy and psychological services to become promulgated or evangelized, but that's that's a pretty recent phenomenon. So therapy of various kinds is still uh, a minority phenomenon, I I guess you're saying, uh, even if it is becoming more popular. It is, it is. And that has to do with several reasons, right? Cost, um, the availability of really well-trained therapists and counselors, um, the availability of culturally competent therapists and counselors, and even psychotherapy in all of its in all of its uh, uh, various forms has been largely developed again on a Western population. The 50-minute hour, the 8 to 12 session cognitive behavioral therapy modules, the dialectical behavior therapy modules largely have been developed for a Western population. Are the Freudians kind of more common than, say, the Jungians or the... (laughs) It's funny you say Freudians. Um, Yeah, so, you know, Freud is really... um, uh, enjoying a resurgence here. Yeah, didn't Evan Osnos write a really great piece in the New Yorker? Yes, about, he did. Yeah, yeah, that was, really yeah. Good. I that was yeah. years ago, but it was really good. Yeah, yeah, but but you know, Freud. I, I have never been exposed to so much Freudian philosophy as I have here in China. <laughs> my supervisor back in two thousand eight. You referenced my training experience in Xi'an at the public hospital, a large public hospital, was psychoanalytically trained and hmm. and very Freudian. And so I received um, my first psychoanalytic supervision uh, from him. Fascinating. Yeah. Did yeah. you think of him sort of as a father figure? Or? You know, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, yes, I did in many ways. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and that, and it's funny. How did that make you feel? Well, yeah, <laughs> really. I mean, you know, it's interesting because um, we, we enjoy a very close relationship even to this day. And that's something mm-hmm. that, that is quite, you know, culturally relevant you know, here. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So we've uh, mentioned the extraordinary competitive pressure in China, you know, and that starts even before you go to school with your, you know, parents saying you've got to get the first step in the race right, otherwise the rest of your life is ruined. Getting to the right (laughs) preschool, the right $50 an hour jump rope lessons, um, you know, the right Uh, primary schools, the, the college admissions test, university, and then once you, you know, you, you've graduated, you've got to get a job and a car and a husband and a wife and, you know, and so on. The, the, the terrible cycle of pressure. <laughs> You're summing it big... up quite well there. <laughs> <laughs> You're summing it up quite well. Yes. The root of all oh. mental health disorders in China. <laughs> well, it, is it? I mean, is that, you know, because that is the first thing that comes to mind when I, I think of mental health disorder yeah, yeah. Is, is that kind of life. Is that a big driver of mental health disorders? The, just the pressure of, to, to compete? 
in, in Chinese society. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And I say that as my personal belief, although obviously research identifies correlation and not causation. Right. right. And so so definitely there's a high correlation because between what we call subjective feelings of distress and actual mental health, mental illness. Right. And so we do see that high correlation. And you're right in that it starts very, very early, very, very early. I remember being rejected from preschools for my for our second son because they laughed in my face when I called a mere four or five months before I, we wanted to matriculate, right? And so, you know, I remember being laughed at on the phone by an admissions officer at a very well-known kindergarten here when, when she said, you want it for this year? She said, this year? She said, people have their children signed up on our wait list from the moment they're born. You know? <laughs> and I said, wow, okay, yeah, I was hoping for this fall. You know, and she said, it's not going to happen. So yeah, the, com- the com- competition starts very early, although it's very interesting to see how that might change. You know, uh, you know, as you know, recently the government has essentially stamped out an entire industry, right. you know, a very large industry. And it's just, it's amazing how I think this is probably the only place in the world where a- an industry can disappear overnight like that. But yeah, it's essentially disappeared. And so... It will be very interesting to see how that changes some of this. So, George, do you, you think know? that's actually in response to a perception of a mental health crisis in China? I mean, you know, they have gone after these. I mean, they, they've recognized these phenomena like lying flat, you know, Tangping uh-huh. and involution. Right. Um, yeah. And, and they've, they've, this has been mentioned in speeches by Xi Jinping. Um, so... Do you think that, that this is actually not just about having more babies, uh, but actually about addressing really underlying mental health issues in China? Well, I mean, I believe so. I mm. believe so. In the speeches, though, mental health has not been mentioned. In the speeches, we're talking, you know, um, you know, what's being mentioned is sort of an, um, an equalizing, right, right a, a right. leveling of the uh, of the playing field. And I understand that also from a socio socioeconomic perspective, of course, that not everyone had access to these very expensive after-school programs and lessons and things like that. So I understand that, but I will say that there is, anecdotally speaking, and also speaking with other members of our other colleagues in our field, there is a very, very high correlation. I do suspect, I do suspect that mental health concerns were among the reasons as to why this was, why this was done. It is a it is an unwinnable race, right? And a, a crazy making race, um, similar literally. to like a hamster. <laughs> literally on that, literally speaking and figuratively, you know, of a hamster running on this wheel, you can never get enough. There's always more to learn. There's always more to prepare. And and parents were talking about how school, actual real public school, was actually not where learning occurred anymore. Because most of the time when a lesson was presented at school, students had already seen it in their various and sundry after-school programs or, or their tutors had already presented it. And so in order to feel like you were keeping up with the Joneses or in our case, keeping up with the Lees or the Changs, right? Like you, you, you needed, you had to sign up for more and more, yeah, um, yeah, more yeah. and more of these lessons. But yeah, it's, it's something that begins way early but if you think about it, I mean, once you get to the place of the Gaokao, and that's where everybody is aiming, right? Everyone right. is aiming for the Gaokao or the college entrance exam, taking your last year of high school here. If you think about that, you are competing in one day 
against millions, millions and millions of, of other children taking the exact same test. And you're charged with differentiating yourself in some way to be one of those storied few that hit for the Bei Da Qinghua kind of level. Right. You know? What a nightmare. Of which there's only, yeah, one or two per province, perhaps? You know, a handful? Chinese kids are born into this race. Yeah. And there's a lot of anxiety pushing that race. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of anxiety historically pushing that race. Yeah. I, I, I must say, uh, color me a little bit... Um... Uh, let's say I'll, I, 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 let's wait and see if this new program of Xi Jinping's actually makes Chinese parents reduce the pressure on their kids. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, you know what I don't, you know what I don't hate is this new limit on video games. Video games, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're a parent. Jeremy's the same. I'm way. a parent. You know, I do not, I do not hate that. Yeah, yeah. Seems... Well, what else am I going to use to keep them out of my hair, though? Christ, I, I, I need those things. You mean what other electronic babysitter can we right, find? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's a, it's a very upper middle class thing to you know look down on the iPad uh, people without babysitters. Um, You're right. Yeah, very true. Um, so what? What you know? Parents they like the video game ban. I think that we're pretty confident. What about? generally attitudes towards mental health. I mean, are they changing? Like we, we've sort of, Kaiser and I, Kaiser mentioned at the, at the beginning of, uh, of this talk, is there, I mean, there, there is more pop culture discussion of mental illness for sure, but is it really changing attitudes? You know, that's very, that's a very interesting question. You brought up something in the introduction, yeah, that, um, you know, where this, this juxtaposition of the stigma that exists toward mental health here in China and this phenomenon in the West where everybody and their mothers talks about their therapist and what their therapist says, right? And I'm from California. And so as much as the rest of the country um, experiences that, <laughs> us in California, it is, it is en vogue for sure to have a therapist or two that you have, that you have seen. So, I, you know, it, it's interesting because I think in the States there has been a demedicalization of mental health just as there has been sort of a semi-demedicalization of other sort of health care-related fields, such as physical therapy or, or medical imaging sometimes or dentistry and things like that, you know, in the States, there's been a demedicalization of some of mental health, which I think has supported and reinforced the dropping of the stigma in the States. Now, I, I will say that there is still quite a stigma a mental health stigma, even in the West. And that is something that we should continue to address. But here in China, there is a very medical approach mm -hmm. to mental mm -hmm. health related issues that I think in part drives the stigma, right? It drives the stigma between difficulties, emotional, mental wellness difficulties and disease, right? There's a link here that's driven by the healthcare system that promotes the stigma that if you are experiencing a difficulty that you're sick, you know, that if you are sick, then you must be debilitated. Right. And so there is that stigma. I think that's driven in part by the system. Now, you know, the, the, I will say that the medical system has done an amazing job. China is a, a society like no other, right? 1.4 billion people. And the government is tasked with providing healthcare somehow at an acceptable level to all of these people. So 
it's a very difficult task. And I think it's a task that's generally done surprisingly well for the most part. But for mental health, I think the question needs to be asked, is this the best approach for this society? George, earlier on in our conversation, you were talking about culture as an important variable here, as as a a way that uh, people interpret you know the very meaning of mental illness or mental wellness. Um, I'm I'm only really guessing here, but I imagine that the field of kind of cross-cultural mental health must have some basic cleavages, like so many other disciplines do, with some people who would would downplay the importance of culture and emphasize instead you know the basic biological or physiological nature of mental health and mental illness, and others who would emphasize the cultural factors. A- am I way off base, or is there a kind of division like that that exists in the mental health field in China? You know, less and less. Uh The intersection between culture and mental health is something that that the conversation is definitely growing here. And this is a conversation that many very well-known psychologists and psychiatrists here in China are a part of. And and, and a conversation that they're pushing, and I think that's very, very necessary. It's a conversation that the Chinese Psychological Society is pushing as well. And and so I think it is something that the intersection will be um, will be discussed more and more. And that's something that I think can really help to break down stigma, really help yeah, to understand yeah. that we all we all deal with frustrations and difficulties, and we all have baggage from our own backgrounds that needs to be discussed and, and processed. For sure, yeah, I mean, no yeah. doubt about that in my mind. But aside from culture, there's also history, right? I mean, yes. you worked on PTSD extensively at the VA hospital in San Francisco, the Veterans Administration Hospital. Uh, and I think a lot of those were people who had come back from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a lot of hands-on experience looking at trauma. Um, in an earlier conversation that you and I had had, you suggested that one's worldview actually has a lot to do with how how you process trauma, how and you hinted, I think, tantalizingly, uh, that th- this idea that that individuals from a country like China that has in living memory experienced societal trauma on just such a scale, you know, that Americans couldn't even imagine, right? That they might handle stress or trauma differently from, say, North Americans, right? I mean, the societies that have experienced trauma might have actually built some. Resilience. I mean, that was an intriguing idea to me. Can you talk more about that idea and, and how far are you willing to take that? Yeah, well, that's a very interesting question. I think research, more research has to be done for sure on this. But, you know, America, the U.S. is a, is a, a country that has obviously for hundreds of years experienced relative peace, right? Apart mm-hmm. from the Civil War, we have not fought, us as Americans have not fought a war on our land, on our soil, um, really ever since since the civil war and um now now i don't want to discount the very real and difficult traumas that many minority groups um undergo in the in the u.s right so so there are um traumas to be experienced there but by and large but by and large um america has uh experienced relative stability and relative peace and you and i growing up in the u.s have internalized that into our worldview that the world is, or the society around us is at, in general, relatively stable, right? Or we have experienced very few completely discombobulating or destabilizing events, by and large. Over mm-hmm. here, though, that has not been the case, right? China has undergone continuous shifts, continuous shifts in government, continuous shifts in its borders, continuous shifts 
for all of its existence, yeah. really. You know, and so there is an element of instability or an element of fear or mm -hmm. anxiety that is sort of built into the Chinese experience, the Chinese kind of world a baseline view. of mild trauma. <laughs> There's a baseline there and, and, and it's expected, right? And that's something that colors everything. You know, a lot of foreigners that, you know, a lot of Americans in particular come here and they say, why is everything, why is everyone crowding? Why is everyone pushing me out of the way? Why does it feel like everybody feels the communal rice bowl is only so big and everyone's grabbing at it? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, and that's man. relevant. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. see that, you see that on at a sale in, of peanut oil at the grocery store. You <laughs> see that on the subway, people trying to get in. You see that on a bus. You know, you see that in people cutting in line. Um, you see it. Um, and, and I think there is this scarcity mentality um, that is there, even though cognitively they know, okay, right now I'm in, I'm in Shanghai in 2021. I don't need to do that, you know, but, but there's something there that pushes it, right? And I think there, there, there is this concept that if I don't get mine, you know, if I don't get mine, if somebody else gets theirs, that may mean less for me. And that's built in here because that has been felt in very recent history. Perhaps yeah. not this millennial generation, but just a generation before and our fathers and our parents' generation, for, for sure. sure. For sure. For sure. And so that affects the psyche in ways that I think really need to be studied. Yeah, that is uh, so interesting. Uh, I, it makes me recall how many times I've heard from my, 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 the word from my children's teachers, uh, inappropriate. And, uh, you know, that's inappropriate for kids to read a book like that, you know. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And I, I think of Chinese people my age who were, you know, watching these extremely bloody war movies at the age of seven. You know? right. <laughs> it's, you know, and South Africa, when I grew up, was perhaps more similar to China in, in the sense of, you know, there were things we did not shield our eyes from. Which right. were in the in the in the contemporary vocabulary very traumatizing, possibly. Yeah. But you know, can we talk about the other side of sort of the culture debate? I mean, it's not all just about culture and how you grew up uh, and and the circumstances of your schooling. Uh, isn't there also hard science in mental health that is rooted in in basic? physiology and biology that is universal to all humans absolutely and like any like most other things it's this interplay mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. in the west we call it the bio, the biopsychosocial model oh i've not heard that illness. biopsychosocial yeah that's good biopsychosocial model which means that there are factors that are biological there are factors that are psychological and there are factors that are social that impact how a person feels subjectively their distress and whether or not a person uh, becomes mentally ill or is maladaptive in their response to that distress, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and I would argue that there are even more things than biopsychosocial, right? There are other things as well, perhaps a spiritual element, perhaps other elements that, that, that also weigh in, but at least the biopsychosocial and that impacts everything and biology is part of it. You know, there is a physiological response, right? There is a difference. Uh, there are um, things that serotonin, norepinephrine, other neurotransmitters can impact. There are other things, there are other impacts from the endocrine system, things like that, that all need to be factored into 
to the conception of mental illness and also its treatment. Going back to something Kaiser said um, a minute ago, one of the things that impacts trauma or response to trauma in, in particular is how well we can integrate the, what is happening, a traumatic event or events into our worldview, mm, right? Mm -hmm. So for a person that feels like, for a person, and this can go back to the psycho or the social model, right? So for a person that feels like traumatic things should not happen, right? Distressing events should not happen. They're wrong. They're not right, right? They shouldn't happen. And, and that person hasn't experienced a whole lot of traumatic events before. Potentially that person could have a larger response, a more severe response, if you will, to that, to that event or events. So Chinese fatalism is actually really good insulation against, uh, you know. Well, uh, it could be thought of in that way, yeah. <laughs> that this could be a protective factor, that there is an existing worldview or a system that assists somebody to integrate what is happening to them, be that system societal, religious or spiritual or what have you, when there is a system that allows the person to integrate the trauma better, more successfully, then that does typically result in less symptoms, less of the classic PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. So, so speaking of people who don't integrate trauma particularly well, well I want to bring this up with sufficient sensitivity here, but I do feel compelled to ask you about this because I, I have friends, I, I'm thinking three off the top of my head who have told me things separately, and they all run programs, um, and this is of course you know back before COVID, that bring college students from around the world to Beijing in, in this case. And, you know, some, some, some of them are based here in the States and, and others are, well, one of them is based in, in Beijing. But they have told me separately that there is an alarming proportion of American students, and it's only American students who are on different prescription drugs, you know, benzodiazepines and other anti-anxiety meds, serotonin reuptake inhibitors and other antidepressants and, and ADHD meds that include, you know, really powerful stimulants, right? They have also talked about the propensity of these American students to completely, you know, melt down, They're just requiring them to either, you know, go home uh, and leave the program or to, you know, I don't know, check out somehow, right? Um, and I, 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 it's, it's, it's just strange to me that not a single non-American student has either come into this program with, you know, a, a prescription or has had some kind of an incident like this. I, I know this is isn't just about China, but since China seems to have adopted more and more the American approach, I wonder if if they are taking any caution from the, I don't know, if it's the overdiagnosis, the over. Um, medication of of psychiatric disorders, whether they, they, there's reason to, to be hesitant about adopting the American model so enthusiastically? You know, I think that there is reason to be hesitant, mm. uh, for sure. I know exactly the phenomenon you're talking about, right? And I think it's a good illustration of what, you know, Jeremy was just bringing up, but the, this biopsychosocial model, I think it is, because you have a bunch of 20-somethings right coming in typically what late undergraduate early graduate school right. aged coming into beijing and, and and when i was working in beijing we we evacuated many of these students, oh wow um for the for the mental health challenges that they were having and they come and they are overwhelmed right they are overwhelmed in one aspect really because 
from the biological perspective, they are at a place in which it is more likely, a place being an age, they're at an age in which it is more likely that they can experience their first break. Wow. If there is, if there's a family history, for example, of bipolar disorder or of manic episodes or of psychotic disorders, then typically that is the age in which the first break or the first experience, the first episode will happen. So you do have that biological predisposition that's potentially there. But you also have a big social change, right? These people are making a huge change, a huge transition coming to China, you know, and, and living and studying and, 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 and working or researching here for a period of time. And it's a huge, huge transition that they need to overcome and they need to walk through. But so, so are the kids that are coming from Europe or from Africa or from Latin America or from sure. Southeast Asia or South Asia, right? Sure, yeah. But there is also, it's, it's interesting too, and I suggest, I suggest that the both of you and, and all of your listeners read it. There's a book called Crazy Like Us written by Ethan Waters. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. talks about, um, the book is entitled Crazy Like Us, and I think it's the globalization of the American psyche. And uh. it's talking about how American concepts of, mental illness have really been evangelized worldwide and have started to affect the ways that people become mentally ill. And he takes four um, examples. Uh, He takes the examples of eating disorders in Hong Kong, depression in Japan, PTSD in Sri Lanka, um, and I believe psychotic disorders in Senegal. Um, And he uses these case examples to illustrate how American concepts of these disorders have started to affect the way that indigenous populations experience the difficulties. And when he talks about depression in Japan, he talks specifically about the sort of serotonin or neurotransmitter deficit narrative of depression, that this is the reason why you're depressed and this is what we should fix when we want to treat your depression, is we should fix this this I'm deficit. Buying this book right now. This sounds yeah, like something I am totally. It's a great book. It's a great book. I believe, though, that at least here in China, the conversation has evolved a little bit since that book was published, in that we are talking more and more about other narratives and other um, correlates to mental health, besides for the purely biological. And that treatment providers are definitely now asking the question. How are your social relationships impacting your mental health? How is your work? How is your family? How are, the ba- how are you approaching the balance between these aspects of your life? How are you finding um, your own sense of purpose or fulfillment, right? And how that correlates to how you feel distressed or how distressed you feel. And so um, these, these conversations are being pushed but by and large, again, you have a healthcare system here that is heavily impacted and charged with um, providing care to over a billion people. And so you do have the average six-minute mental health encounter here in the public system, you know, six to seven minute. If you gua zuan jia hao, or if you buy the VIP service that a lot of public hospitals have, perhaps you'll get a little bit more, up to 10 or 15 minutes. You know, but it's a system that is very, very impacted and it's hard to find other ways of, of, of treatment that are mm. accessible to the population. Yeah. You know, at the same time, 
right? The public system allows people to sort of treat their mental illness under the table, right? You can take a day off, go to the public hospital, see the psychiatrist, get your medications, and then take them in secret. Yeah. Right? You don't need to let anybody know. Whereas it's harder to hide weekly or biweekly meetings with a psychotherapist. Right, right, right. And to take that consistent time off work, for example. That's true. Yeah. I, I mean, I have to say, when it comes to the, the uh, amount of medications that American students are on, I mean, that, that is totally unsurprising. I, I think uh, anybody who's a foreigner who first comes to America is completely shocked by drug advertising here. I mean, you can't get away from it. And uh, even yeah. inside the doctor's rooms, uh, you know, my family doctor's at a a sort of a, a biggish hospital and inside the consulting rooms there's a screen trying to sell me drugs <laughs> from you know <laughs> which well i mean, I mean <laughs> thankfully i think that that's reducing by and large in the u.s as, as you know people are people are paying attention to that i think that i think that that's reducing and that's actually reducing here as well you know it wasn't that long ago when many drug companies actually had offices and desks in hospitals where their representatives would park themselves oh, God. you know um although now that that's that's been reducing here as well i think everyone's paying attention to um over prescription yeah right starting so. starting with antibiotics and, and and related medications obviously with antibiotic stewardship committees and and, and 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 actually the world health organization pushing you know attention to that but also trickling down to other types of medica medications and i think you're right i really do think that we need to change these narratives of mental health not only to reduce the over medication phenomenon but also to respect the fact that mental health difficulties are multifactorial like i said before study after study have has really pushed the fact that what the in most cases the most successful treatment of mental health disorders comes by a, a mixture or a combination of psychiatric medication, if needed, and psychological interventions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To, to shift topics a little bit, George, you just mentioned the World Health Organization. You have been in China throughout the pandemic, uh, and you, you know, have doubtless kept an eye on how it was handled and is being handled in the United States uh, and other countries. Do you think it says something about the values and political culture that the responses in China and the U.S. to mask mandates and stay-at-home orders were so different? Or, or is there something that you can say about psychology and mental health, too? Wow, that's a big question and a great one, Jeremy. I, you know, I have been observing this, you know, from the near and far. <clears throat> and and, and it, it, it really is interesting. It really is interesting. Right here in China, obviously, um, there's been little to no resistance to mask mandates, stay-at-home orders, work-from-home orders. I, I remember giving an interview for the BBC um, in the middle of the, the, in the height of the pandemic in early 2020. And, and you know, the question was, how did Chinese people manage the, the, the process of, of converting from work-from-office to work from home. And I said, well, you know, literally you showed up at work one day and there's a padlock on the door. <laughs> so the question was, do you work from home or do you leave your job is the question, <laughs> right? 
And so there wasn't a, a process. There was a, you know, for, for most companies, it was like, you need to come into the office today by five to retrieve your laptop and work from home because tomorrow morning at eight, the door will be padlocked. And if you want to keep your job, you need to be able to do this. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I'm not saying that that was the best approach. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that that was, you know, the best approach, but it was the approach that had to be implemented given the reality of what was happening. You know, and, and mask mandates is another is another thing. Uh, you know, I think that there is a, um, and you guys have referenced this many times on your podcast, but there is a level of inherent trust of authority here um, that I think is different from back in the States. Hmm. You know, um, I think there's a level of that. And I think that there is a difference in the conception of Chinese people of the part versus the whole. You know, I think there's a difference here, here that the two are much more intertwined, the part and the whole, than in the States, right? In the in classic yin and yang um, fashion, the two cannot be uh, differentiated from, from yeah, differentiated from another, or from each other. Whereas in the States, the two definitely can. Yeah. Right. There is this I, there is this ego, right, in the in the psychological sense, right? There's this there's this I that is separate from the whole, that develops independently, that the whole needs to respond to. Right? The whole must respond to me, right? Must must respond to the I. And and this is pushed and promulgated in a lot of different, you know, the sort of American desperado. The um, the Lone Ranger kind of like um, um, the sure. elevation of this kind of this 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 kind of life. I, I think you know it's it's a, in a lot of you know American narratives that in a way that's not here. You know, not in folk tales and, 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 and historical narratives here. So not reading so, Ayn Rand in China, thank God. <laughs> no, no. So then that trickles down to like how a person. Um, response to a mask mandate. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Even in a place like a school, like even among unvaccinated children, even among lots of unvaccinated children, or, or things like that. Right. And 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 I think that affects, um, you know, how someone views a mask mandate as being extremely ego threatening. You hmm. know, threatening to the self and threatening to my sense of integrity, the integrity of the ego, um, in a way that's very different from here. It's not. The responding that way to the whole um, is not viewed as injurious to the ego here. Yeah, I mean, so you as somebody who's sensitive to both, you know, Western and, and then Chinese side, I have to ask you something sort of selfish here, but uh, I figure how often, <laughs> I, how often do I get to talk to a bicultural Chinese-American psychologist, right? So uh, I have I have at times thought I could benefit from therapy, you know, full confession. I've never actually experienced it except for, you know, a brief session in, it was like 2002 that ended with a therapist telling me basically, no, you've just had a rough breakup. You're not depressed. You just need, you don't need ther therapy. You just, you know, need to get a little more sleep, maybe exercise and fall in love again. Uh, but but the moments when I, I've most acutely felt the need were typically during these really dark periods in U.S.-China relations where, where I felt like my whole life's mission was just failing. <laughs> anyway, you, you know how that goes. But uh, I felt mm -hmm. like, you know, the therapist I really needed would have had to be somebody who understands both the Chinese thing and, and the American thing. I mean, was I off base in thinking that? Is there like... I'm just asking very selfishly here. Is there like a, a market for bicultural therapy, especially Chinese American bicultural therapy? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that and I first experienced that market back at home, back at home in California. And I mm-hmm. and I talk about this um, everywhere I go, which is that I um I work on both ends of the couch, as it were. Oh. I am um, at the same time a treatment provider and also a consumer of psychological services of psychotherapy, and I have been for much of my life. And it's not something that um, that I keep secret. And it is, um, you know, this field is a very difficult one, <laughs> and, and my job has a lot of pressures. But not just my job, life in general, right? Yeah. Adjusting yeah. to everything. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I you know, I, I, I am trying to move forward and, and, and make sense of this crazy thing called life in our world. And, 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 and I need a sounding board. And when I look for one, I look for one that I believe can understand a part or some of my experiences, right? At least on the surface level of somebody um, looking like me, um, sounding like me, somebody who has had roughly the same experiences historically as myself and my family. I, I've mostly been using Jeremy, and that's not working out so well. Oh yeah, that's not working out. <laughs> that's a very bad idea. But 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 I say I say I, I experienced this first at home. The market for um, especially for multicultural therapists, yeah, right? Yeah, not yeah. just Chinese American, but multicultural therapists, because um, you know so much of this field is dominated by a white majority. You know that I think we really really need to change. Um, so much of this field at home in the U.S. is dominated by a white majority, I should say. Mm-hmm. And so, so I first experienced this need in the market in California, where I was doing much of my work back in community mental health in California. I was doing a third of my work in Mandarin. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Back in, obviously, I worked in the Bay Area. There's a high Mandarin-speaking population, a high immigrant, you know, high numbers of immigrants. And so people who felt like their heart language is Mandarin um, or... Their heart language was a Chinese dialect and Mandarin was the closest to it. And so I worked a third of my patients in in Mandarin. And there was such a demand for bilingual and bicultural, multicultural therapists, particularly people back in California who could speak Mandarin or Spanish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in the places that I worked, Farsi and Hindi as well. Mm -hmm. On a related question, George, how particular is the Chinese family dynamic in Chinese people's mental health? Because, I mean, I've got to think a lot of like what we think of, I mean, certainly Freudianism seems to come from like Jewish people's like (laughs) mothers. I mean, you know, some of the Jewish European European family issues is kind of, (laughs) but I mean, the Chinese family is a, is a really uh, very complicated and very difficult um, and very different beast. It, it is <laughs> well, easily it's many... the source of most of my psychological anguish. That's for sure. Well, I didn't want to say that. But... <laughs> I've already offered. I've already offered to pay for my kids' therapy in the future. I've already sort of <laughs> put that out there okay. um, for sure. And I'm not. And I'm not joking. I really have. But. Um, but, you know, there's been famous sort of similarities, right, and, and, and uh, drawn between the Chinese family and the Jewish family, you know. Um, but, but yeah, you know, huge, right, to, to, to answer your question. And, and the Chinese family is very particular, is unique, right? You mentioned, Kaiser, in the opening, um, the one-child policy, right? Where in the world has there been a similar um, right, right. policy, you know, and, and the Chinese family historically has been very different from the one child family that was 
um, a I'll thing say. here for a couple of generations, right? Before the Chinese society valued large extended families in communities from the Chinese ways of, you know, from even Chinese architecture and home design, we can see that. Yeah. You know, that, 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 that what was traditionally valued here for thousands of years um, was something extremely different from the one child. Um, and that, that necessitated, and, and this is where it intersects with socioeconomic realities, um, that coincided with a more nuclear-based structure. Right? That was something that was really, um, that came down here within a generation or two. Right? The, Chinese, uh, the Chinese family really shifted. And, and, and now it's shifting again. <laughs> right? yeah. And so the Chinese family is a very unique one that up until very, very recently, you had one child um, raised by only children. And, and, and so that's a phenomenon. And then you have multiple generations raising one child where you have famous four, two, one. Yeah. The focus of two generations, at least on one individual. Yeah. yeah. And we were discussing pressure before, right? The pressure to, to perform that starts before preschool. And there is a pressure that starts very, very early that you are the one and only hope for your for your family yeah. right? you are the one and only hope for your family because you, your parents literally get one chance and you're it and that's a lot of pressure it sure is it's a lot of pressure combined with the societal pressure and jeremy you mentioned this in your opening too you know the um the 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 pressure to buy a house and get a car and actually the pressure that the concept that you are unmarriageable right especially if you're male that nobody will marry you unless you have a car and a house, uh, you know, and that's very difficult to do. You know, I live in Shanghai. I have a great job. I don't have a car and a house. <laughs> you know, I just, I just. Neither did Jeremy or I, but we still ma managed yeah. to bag, you know, pretty cool Beijing chicks. <laughs> <laughs> you still, you still managed to get a spouse. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, yeah. You know, thankfully I was married before I came here. Otherwise I don't think I could ever find it because all I have after all these years is finally a car. You know. All right. Um, well, congratulations on that. Yeah. George, yeah. I can see I'd have a million more things to talk to you about. Uh, but uh, we, I know, I mean, you know, if you were charging us for 50 minute uh, appointments, uh, <laughs> we'd, we'd be. In. But w thank you so much for taking the time. What a fascinating conversation. I'll be calling you separately to book an appointment for therapy. Uh, if that's Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> for now, though, let's move on to recommendations. Uh, but first, let me remind everybody that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. And if you like the work that we're doing with Seneca or some of the other shows in the, in the Seneca network, by all means, just remember that the best thing that you can do to support us uh, is to subscribe to SupChina Access, our daily email newsletter, which is put together lovingly every day by Jeremy and his team. Lucas and, and Zhao Yun are just phenomenal colleagues, and uh, you should check out the work that they do. The SubChina Access Newsletter. That's what keeps the lights on here at Seneca. All right, man. Let's go on to our recommendations. Jeremy, do you want to start us off? What you got? Yes. I, I just suddenly realized, well, I hope I haven't done this one before, but um, a book called Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. Um, it's about f mushrooms and uh, fungi, all kinds of uh, all kinds of fungi that are this amazing part of the global ecosystem in ways that you probably hadn't thought about. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like Richard Powers' territory. I mean, he wrote about those fungal networks that connect trees to each other. Is that part of that book? That's a little bit, the, the, yeah. The, the oh, that's that's cool. And 
you know, all the other fun stuff that one can do with mushrooms too. Oh, that, huh? <laughs> it's, mostly, <laughs> it's mostly about the networks. <laughs> yeah, George, how are you on microdosing? That's, 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 that's you're going to get me on record on that. Right, huh? No, I'm not. I'm not he I'm can't not. prescribe from Shanghai, Kaiser. Right. I can't. That's true. I don't. Yeah. This is not physician's advice now. Like, but, no, um, no. Yeah, great. No, that, that book sounds great. Um, what a fun guy you are. Right. Um, <laughs> great. What's the name of the book again? Entangled Life. Entangled Life. I'll check it because out because of the networks. You know. I've already bought one book while we've been we've been going here, but uh, about you know, I, I'm you know getting crazy like us, the globalization of the American psyche. So that's mm. yeah. that sounds Thank, scary. For, yeah. Okay, George, what do you have for us recommendation wise? Well, that was the one, Crazy oh. Like Us by Ethan Waters. Yeah, uh, okay. that was the one, the globalization of the American psyche talks about, like I said, about how we have really evangelized a very particularly American way of being sick. Particularly interesting in this book is how it has uh, started to affect the way indigenous populations experience this distress. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah. And I think it remains to be seen how this plays out over the next generation, whether this globalization really uh, will continue and, and, whether the, and how that will affect the conversations in multicultural psychology and mental health. Yeah. 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 All right. So I'm up. Um, I'm going to recommend the new album from the awesome inner Mongolian band, nine treasures or Joba. The album is called awakening from Dukkha D U K K H A. It's just killer. So these guys, you know, they're a metal band with horse head fiddles and Mongolian throat singing. Uh, it's just kick ass so if you need a soundtrack as you and your band of hardy step riders fall upon a sedentary agrarian village with sword and torch this is the album for you and you know that that's we all need that from time to time so uh Kaiser, I, when i grow up when i grow up i'm gonna i'm gonna get your command of adjectives that is my goal <laughs> in life is to have a similar command of, of adjectives. Of weird adjectives, yeah. Well, thank you, it's George. It's beautiful. All right. It, it comes from my distress. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a great way of coping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. George, thank you so much for taking the time, man. I, I am free, by the way, most weeks this around this time, so I'll, I'll you know, we can book 50 minutes, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely not a problem. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure. I've been an avid follower of your podcast for, for a long time. Thanks, man. And so it I, was I don't know if great... you can help Kaiser with what what ails him. George, Whatever but... he has. <laughs> <laughs> we'll figure it out. Well, I can probably commiserate with much of it. I can probably commiserate with much of it. But I've been a follower of your podcast for a long time and i gotta tell you it is it is a great privilege um to be invited so well it's entirely our pleasure and jeremy as always a pleasure to have you back on the show and uh let's do this more often man we keep saying that but yeah uh, i keep doing these obscure academic topics and jeremy's like nah (laughs) but we'll, (laughs) we'll do more like this all right the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com or just as good, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people to discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. You can follow specifically Seneca at Seneca at... You can follow Seneca specifically at Seneca Podcasts on Twitter and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. 
Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.